For me, neurodiversity means that we are a species、mm-hmm. that has all right-handed scissors, and we have left-handers.、Yeah. So it's important in my mind、yeah. to remember that just because the world doesn't have resources or Fit, you know, the left-handers of the world doesn't mean that the left-handers of the world—that's an issue or a problem. Welcome to the Living Centered podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles, and I'm your host, Mackenzie Boat. Hey friends! Today I am so excited to introduce you to therapist and onsite team member Rebecca Milhone. Rebecca serves as the clinical specialist on our California campus at the Oaks, overseeing workshops and intensives. Lindsay and I got the chance to sit down with her when she was recently in Nashville, just to get to know her a little bit. She is an absolutely brilliant clinician, and our conversation ran the gamut. We talked about school. We talked about how she formed a passion for group work, her life living full time in an RV, her thesis on a rare trait called alexithymia. You're going to want to know what that is. Uh, her facility service dog Nova, and the power of creating safe spaces for diversity. Like I said, we talked about everything. It was a full and impactful conversation, and I really can't wait for you to meet Rebecca. Without further ado, Rebecca Milhone. I am so excited to be sitting down with you today, Rebecca. I'm really excited for people to get to know you, and especially your role at the Oaks.、Um, so, can you just tell us who you are、um, and how long you've been in the field of mental health? Yeah, hi. It's good to be here at, in the Tennessee campus、yes. right now. So that's exciting. Been doing some training this week, this、mm-hmm. month, doing a deep dive into the on-site kind of way. So I'm excited about that. But yes, I will be、uh, located at the Oaks full time. I'll be their first full time connection there. Really excited about that. And as far as like when I started in the field, I really like to say that I started when I was 19 years old.、Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people, a lot of clinicians, like to say, you know, I started when I, you know. Got my education, my master's, but I really, truly believe my journey started when I was 19. I the first experience I got was through AmeriCorps, and I did、mm-hmm. a year、um, at a very,、um, very, you know, it was for me as a 19 year old. It was it was a shock、yeah. to my system that、um, it was working with foster youth who had struggled through the foster system, and particularly、mm. young women. Yeah,、um, and so I really. Got to jump on. Who am I serving? What am I serving? Why am I here? What you know beyond you know I'm helping people. So I think、and、I started. What was、like, your role with them? Like what did what did you do? Yeah, with those kids. Yeah, just the little things. The what、uh, we love our acronyms <laughs> ADLs, which is activities of daily living. Okay. okay. So I sat with them when they were you know crying because they missed their. Their parents, or I sat with them as they were <laughs> having their first period.、Um, yeah. I, oh, wow. I walked with them, talked with them, cooked. I say that tentatively because <laughs> I was still learning. Yeah, <laughs> you heated things. We heated things. <laughs> yes,、yeah. we heated things and tried to make vegetables. Yeah. 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 And so, did you? You did not live in the facility with them. You just came in every day. Yes. Okay. Yes, I did. 
And what do you feel like that did for you? You kind of ended up in the social work route where some people get into the mental health field thinking from like, through like marriage and family therapy, but you went the social work route. And how do you think that experience influenced you pursuing social work school? I want to say it got it subconsciously, yeah. <laughs> unconsciously <laughs> influenced me because I actually went the neurobiology route, okay, which was like a real huge sidestep. Yeah, but I love the organ, the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I find it so fascinating. So I actually, after that job, um, I started looking into schools, colleges, yeah. and um, decided to go. I really was interested in neurobiology. Mm-hmm. Just got really fascinated with it. Um, mm-hmm. How does this? how does this thing in our brain control our bodies? How does this thing, you know, in this skull of ours, like who we are and understanding who we are and what we are based on this this organ. So, yeah. So when I went, I went to Berkeley from my undergrad mm-hmm. and I did neurobiology. Um, and interestingly, I minored in dance. Oh. So I was a competitive ballroom dancer through high school. So, so fascinating. Do you still dance? Not not like competitively, but yeah, um, my favorite is waltz and tango. So cool. Yeah, big passion of mine. How is that something that you got into as a teenager? I actually found it through a friend, mm-hmm. um, and I actually, it, it was a dance troupe. So okay. we actually traveled Ooh. and we performed. My highlight, my 15 minutes of uh, fame was I got to be a teddy bear at Disneyland. Um, my gosh, that's a big deal. I did. Uh, I'm very proud of myself during Christmas time. So it's a big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I've always been the kind of person that's like, I'll try it once. Always. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I'll try that once. If I don't like it, I don't have to continue. But I loved it. So mm. then I just kept going. And you're good at it, obviously. Yeah, I really was. And um, I, and I, I think it was because of the passion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So college, Berkeley, dance, neurobiology. Mm-hmm. And then you graduate from college. And what's next? What did you do after that? Yeah. So I um, so I worked my way through college, too. Mm-hmm. I got to put that out there. That, like, I was tired. Yeah. I was tired. So I went to um, San Francisco, which is right across, you know, the water, the bridge from Berkeley, mm-hmm. and look for some place that I could kind of find some calm, honestly. Yeah. I did, it's called the Faithful Fools in um, San Francisco. They are a nonprofit that their main thing is we walk the streets. Mm. So they walk the streets of the Tenderloin, they walk the streets of San Francisco, they provide support, they provide, a, I know I, maybe a cameo for them, but like yeah. I, I got to intern under them. Mm-hmm. And just watch the world and calm. There's a lot of meditative spaces. Um, I spent uh, six months doing that. So that was like kind of a restful position. Yes. Yes. It was a restful, calm. You spend a month not talking. Like, it was just like a lot of like, it's Mm. interesting. They have a nun and a, a Catholic nun and a Buddhist monk who is now a professional clown as the owner. So you can see that there's like this Very eclectic. Yeah. They hooked me up after that with a family homeless shelter. Mm. So this is a shelter that was only for families, which is very rare in San Francisco. And they try their very best. Um, So I was a case manager 
this uh, family homeless shelter. Mm. And then I went back to Sacramento and I became a crisis house <laughs> supervisor. <laughs> so I did so crisis a lot of social work. work. Yes. Before I was a social worker. Yeah. Uh-huh. Cool. Before I was a social worker. Yeah. I make up that you like you kept finding positions that were really meeting the, like urgent need. Like I, I think like you were doing walk the streets and providing care and then you were in the homeless shelter and then you were in the crisis center, like really. And I feel like that would have been a lot emotionally. And so how did you like learn to take care of yourself in that season or didn't you? Mm. I think for me making choices based on your inner voice, mm. your moments of calm. I mean, I know it, it may seem... <laughs> basic. But when I was tired, I did six months. When I was at at the crisis house, when I felt like I needed support, that voice said, get some support. Like, I just think, I think it's um, underrated that Mm -hmm. sometimes like we just don't go in the calm spaces enough or quiet spaces enough to hear that voice. And sometimes with trauma, you don't and I'm saying this because I, I want to put this out to the folks who have had a lot of trauma. Sometimes it becomes really hard to trust that inner voice mm-hmm. um, based on what's happened to you. So I want to put that out there as well. And and we're talking about the power of and. I love that word. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I do believe that everyone has that inner voice. Sometimes the chatter is large. Sometimes it's so large that you need support mm-hmm. to find it again. But um, Honestly, if I had to say what was leading the way was quieting myself and, and listening to that. What did I need? Because mm. I truly, truly believe that, yes, I was helping those people. But I, I think for um, someone in social work, mm-hmm. uh, someone in therapy in general, if you're doing it just because you're helping someone, you're burning out. Yeah. If you're doing it because you know your life and your learning is connected with the people that you are working with, then you find joy, you find levity, you find learning. And so I think Crisis House was where I grew my roots, Mm. grew my roots really, and wanted to become a social worker at that point. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So you went back to school? I did. Yes. I did. I went to the (laughs) weird and amazing um, Smith College they have a weird program where you do two nine-month internships and oh, interesting. full-time mm-hmm. across the country. So I did one in Vermont, and I did one in Oakland. Mm. And then um, three summers of coursework. So you, you squish all the two years into, into three summers. So that's where I got my clinical social work. Oh. That seems like a really unique program. That's really cool. It is. It's very unique. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I loved about it is because during because this coursework is during the uh, summers, mm-hmm. you got people from all around the world that could teach. Mm. Like I had people like teach me, you know, African American studies who were from Africa. <laughs> I had people who were teaching me about um, nonprofit who were literally nonprofit owners. Yeah, so it was a very cool, unique experience to have. That's awesome. And I got to travel across country eight times. So that's cool, too. (laughs) So before we started talking, you kind of were talking about how you live kind of a wanderlust lifestyle. And you have been traveling. You said you traveled across the country eight times. So what does that mean? I have lived in an RV 
40-foot RV for the last eight years. And I would not change it for the world. You know, I live in the San Diego County, <laughs> but many places in the San Diego County. Mm. And I just, I love it. And I was joking, but I really, truly, I don't like cleaning. So those of you <laughs> out there who doesn't like cleaning, um, it's about 10 minutes to clean my house. So I'm really excited. I, I love that aspect. So yeah, so I live, I live in an RV and gotten to travel all around because of that. That's fascinating though. And I have so many questions about living in an RV, but mostly what has that taught you about yourself living in a small space? <laughs> that I don't need much. Yeah. I don't need much. Yeah. Because you don't have room for them all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> What's precious to me, I think. Yeah. I think you like realize, um, I don't know, that 40th pillow you don't need, like, or the the... I don't know. The things that are closest to me that I use every day, my rule is that if you haven't used it in a week and it's not sentimental, it needs to go. Mm. Everything that I use, I use within a week. Everything I have on me, I've worn within a week. Um, everything that I have in my backpack, it's close to me. I want to, you know. And, and and I don't buy, I don't buy things that, <laughs> that I don't love, like really love. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's going to take up space. Yeah. Is that different than, again, like your upbringing and how you're raised? Like I I was raised in a pretty affluent area where, you know, like you got things and you accumulated them. And that was like almost like status was related to uh, the things that you had. And then I worked for a couple nonprofits and have traveled a lot around the world and that was like such a powerful reframe for me to realize like how excessive stuff can be, you mm -hmm. know, even in American culture, how we think about things and our lifestyles and yeah. put value on putting down roots, buying a house and sort of creating a, a static environment mm. that we feel like we can own and control is so different than a lot of how a lot of people yeah. live. And so I'm just curious about what shaped that for you. Was it really you got into the RV and you realized that or was choosing the RV lifestyle based on things that you'd already sort of decided about how you wanted to live more minimally? Mm, well, that's a yes and <laughs> um, because I definitely, I did not grow up affluent. I grew up very poor, very poor. So I did not have a lot of things growing up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then when my family were, they did eventually become, both parents got jobs and we had a house and we had things. I did feel that. I felt like they were gathering a lot of things and I, I don't think I liked it. I think mm -hmm. that might have really influenced me. Yeah. Was like, there was something about, even though we weren't in a great place financially, there was a lot of quality time mm. around that time. But when we had stuff, there wasn't a lot of time. Yeah, mm. I could see that. Yeah. It's a distraction, yeah. maybe. A distraction or um, there was this study, and, I, and maybe, I'll, maybe you'll take this out of here. But, <laughs> but there was this study about how money, when you don't have it, they always say like money doesn't cause happiness. Well, that's not totally true. Actually, when you don't have a lot of money, mm -hmm. getting money to a certain point does cause happiness because it creates opportunity. Mm. 
But at a certain point of affluence, there is no longer a connection between happiness and how much money you have. So if you have a million dollars a year and you have $20 yeah, million dollars right. a year, they've actually seen that those like 20 million is actually in general less happy. Mm. So I, I've always kind of like in that, I think about that. Like yeah. at what point were we had enough opportunity and we didn't need more right. of that. And I think I've found that in my little, my, my way. My friend once told me, I said, when I was thinking about a house, like a condo versus an RV, he said to me, Becca, why would you ever buy a house? You've always wanted to purchase experiences over mm. things. Yeah. So then that's, he, he kind of tipped me over. Because I did great. have these feelings of like, what are you talking about? You're like in your 30s. Why are you like, <laughs> why yeah. not a condo? Why not a house? Why not all these things? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And so you love being like the flexibility it brings. It's where it keeps you grounded and not accumulating stuff. And mm-hmm. yeah. How do you, um, with an RV, like how do you choose where you go? Yeah. So right now it depends on what I'm doing with my life instead of the, it's kind of flipped, Mm. right? Like instead of me having to focus on where I have to be, I get to choose what I'm doing. And then that does that, that does where I get to go. So like before working on onsite, I was private practice. So I spent a lot of times at RV parks near the beach. Mm. Um, now I get to park my RV near the Oaks and be close to work. Yeah. Um, when I, you know, during holidays, I would drive up to, uh, to my family and got to be near them, but not too close. Yes. <laughs> That's essential. Uh, during the holidays. Uh, yeah. 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 So I, yeah, that's that's kind of it's more about like what the choices I'm making and what I want to do with my life mm-hmm. versus where my location is. Cool, that's so fascinating. Um, a word that you've used a couple of times, and I want to return to it is "and." So the power of "and." We talked a little bit about that um, before we hopped on, and I was like, I really want to explore that with you. How has that reframe from kind of removing "but" and replacing it with "and"? <laughs> Uh, how has that helped you in your journey or been a tool that's helped ground you? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was telling you that I used to be a butt person, not mm-hmm. B-U-T-T, but B-U-T. B-U-T. And, and, see? What it did for me, I think I got really into school, really uh, some perfectionism there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I used to say, I am smart, but, or... Um, I have good friends, but, and whatever came after that was always a shameful statement Mm. or a guilt statement um, or always something that needed to be fixed or worked on. Even negating the first part of the statement, like I have good friends, but this happens or blah, 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 then really do you have? That's interesting. Yeah. It's kind of like when people say, uh, um, you know, disclaimer, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but... Yeah. yeah. And then they say the thing. Yeah. So, and when I brought that in, so it's something like, I am smart and human to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So it lended to self-compassion, uh, changed those shame statements into things that I actually had control over. Yeah. Um, and 
helped me to see like, I don't know, just the human aspect of <laughs> just being more human towards myself. Yeah. Uh, because it, because when you constantly are telling yourself, but you just always feel like you're a human doing instead of a human being, you're always striving for that thing. And that is the most like sad place to be all the time mm-hmm. is that I'm never what I want to be. I never can reach what feels like whole. And so uh, the power of Andrew really helped me to see that I can be me in this present moment and be whole um, while also being a striver and mm. wanting to be wanting to be a better person, wanting to work on those things. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean that everything that I am is not enough. So Anne mm. really helped me. And I use it a lot in my work. I use it a lot when I hear a lot of people saying but or shoulds mm. um, or different things like that. I try to kind of talk to them about the power of and. And it's really like our two degrees that we talk mm-hmm. about here. That two degrees can just be a simple and. Hey there, friends. If you have found your way to the Living Centered podcast, you might already know about Onsite's flagship in-person experience from which we derive our name. But what you may not know is that you now can experience our transformational and life-changing Living Centered program on both our Tennessee and California campuses. As Rebecca shared in this episode, she was our first, but not our last, full-time employee at the Oaks, and we are so excited to be expanding our offerings there. Our Living Center program is our most popular workshop. It's a world-renowned group experience designed to remove you from your day-to-day and help you get back to yourself and the life you actually want to be living. This program had a tremendous impact on the trajectory of my life. And so if after listening to our podcast for a while, you are ready to take the next step, our admissions team would love to connect with you. You can email them at admissions at onsiteworkshops.com or give them a call at 800 341-7432. We would love to see you soon on our California or Tennessee campus. It just brings to mind to me that like how important our language is, even yeah. our self-language. Mm-hmm. And that the that in a lot of ways it's like you think of it as just a conjunction. It's holding two thoughts together, the word but or the but, word right. and. Mm-hmm. And that they can be pretty replaceable or yeah. exchangeable in a lot of ways, but the but can be negating mm-hmm. and diminishing mm-hmm. and the and is more expansive and gives equal weight to both thoughts, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Um, and so just so interesting how important that mm-hmm. little three-letter word is. Yeah. And so I love that. It's really thought-provoking. A big part of my journey has been embracing like both and I like always say like it's this and it's this or it's both. I can be both strong and weak or I can be both outgoing and thoughtful or, you know, just kind of taking the two parts of myself that often feel in opposition um, and really embracing that. I think I read a book like it was all around the concept of bittersweet and those feel like they're opposite. But how beautiful that is. And Shauna. You know, I'm obsessed with Sean and Equus, guys. But um, yeah, I love that thought. You said you use that in your work. So what are you most excited about at being Oaks? And this is a big transition for you. You were in private practice, and now you're going to be at the Oaks most of the time. And what does that look like for you, and what are you most excited about? Well, oh, I always say that groups are my bread and butter. Mm. 
So in private practice, like I loved um, creating a few groups, but it was hard in private practice to do so. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I'm really excited to get back into the groups uh, and learn more about intensives. Uh, You know, throughout, throughout the time I've been doing clinical work, the times I've seen the most change were those short periods at Crisis House. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the shelters I worked at were shorter term. There is a lot you can do with focus and intention in a short period of time to start someone off on a good path, to start someone off on that two degrees. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I really believe in that. And so I'm excited to get back into that kind of work. And I really, <laughs> also, I really just... I think COVID for me, and I'll bring bring that word in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, private practice turned into a lot of telehealth. Yeah. And I'm ready to get back With to people. face-to-face. I'm ready to get back and, and work mm. toe-to-toe, hand-to-hand, whatever, you, you know, with them. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that. And then I get to be part of like um, a start. Yeah. Yeah, the full time and just kind of a program there. More stability, like more, I don't know what you want to call it, a foundation. Like building, from, building from the ground yeah, up. Building yeah. from the ground up is exciting. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. You know, at Onsite, we believe a lot in the power of group work, and we love that all of our workshops have mm-hmm. that sort of small group experiential component. And so I'd love to hear what you love about group and why you think it's so effective to sort of get people together. Mm-hmm. and and connect that way and how healing happens in groups. Yeah, it does. I mean, I can be the smartest person in the entire world as a therapist, and it would not mean as much as that person next to you saying, me too. Mm. Me too. Mm. And looking at you in the eye and looking at you with what you just said and full vulnerability and saying yes. I just, I have, I've had a lot of, um, done a lot of good work in private practice, yeah. one-on-one, couples, you know, those kinds of things. But I have to say that the connection that you can build with someone who can connect on you from a place of vulnerability, which is the group members, and meet you heart-to-heart is, you know, you can't, I don't know, you can't do that the same yeah. way. I know in my personal experience, for me, a lot of times, I'm not a verbal processor. Yeah. And so um, it can be hard for me to access words to describe my thoughts or feelings sometimes. And so for me, the group experience like was such a key that unlocked words for me. It was like listening to other people begin to vocalize things that they were going through. It's like, oh, that's what it is. Or it's, mm, it was like enough yeah. to start, start to really be able to put words to my own experience that I think it would have taken me forever to try to like sit down with one person and have them try to pull it out of me. Mm-hmm. Whereas I felt like listening to other people process their own experience unlocked some of my own. So Mm-hmm. Just echoing. I think it's a really powerful tool. Yeah, I was telling uh, Kitty about uh, my thesis, which was on alexithymia. That's what I was just about to ask you. I was like, is that? Does <laughs> the research bear <laughs> out say, that? Say that word again. Yeah. Alexithymia. Alexithymia. It's the inability or struggle to process words, to process emotions through words, mm. through the verbal language. And in Canada, they have several, they've done studies with this for 
decades. Um, America doesn't have it quite yet. But I got to go to Canada and talk to some of the researchers there and, and do a little study of my own and things like that. But it was like va- so validating yeah, of what I had seen in the group rooms. Yeah. That there is a huge need because we are not, <laughs> you know, um, Rumi would say we have 10 minds. Mm. We are not we are not just our verbal expression of ourselves. We mm-hmm. are and Brene Brown just came out with Atlas of Change. Mm. Says we are feeling beings mm-hmm. that think. Yeah. We're not thinking beings that feel. Mm. Yeah. So when and especially with trauma work, so much trauma work that we do here on onsite is is so nonverbal. Yeah. And and is held in the body that I, you know. I absolutely believe what you're saying. I absolutely feel yeah. what yeah. you're so, saying. So that everyone experiences that to some degree, or it's a, a condition that just some people have? or Yeah, it's actually considered a trait. Okay. Ooh, okay. Yeah, it's not, it's like temperament. Mm. It's like attachment styles. It's, it's a trait mm. that people have, and... It's on a spectrum, just like everything else. So we all have some of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if I asked you, you know, what's the emotion that's the easiest to express, what would you say? Uh, for me, I would say fear, maybe. Okay. Mm. And what about for you? I would say fear or delight. Okay. I would and say I delight. Well, yeah. I would say anger. Anger. Oh. Yeah. So, on the spectrum of feelings, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we all have feelings that maybe are easier for it to express based on mm-hmm. our biology, based on our, you know, backgrounds, past stories, whatever it is, yeah. mm-hmm. that made it okay to express those things. And we have behind that is a scale of alexithymia. It's what what trait on what scale am I that it, it's harder to express emotions verbally mm-hmm. or less hard? So I think I can't really answer that in any particular way, only to say that everyone has some of it. And what are some of the ways that we, I mean, we obviously are big components of experiential, and I think that's such a way to get beyond even some of the self-criticism that I felt in my own experience being in um, a Living Centered program. I was able to get out of my head, my thinking head, and get in my body, and it unlocked things that I never I never even had to say a lot of the words, just things got unlocked. But what are some of the other tools for people who struggle to process those emotions? To process them verbally? Yeah, or, or like, what are some of, like, in the research or things that you discovered in your thesis, like, what helps those people who can't verbal process? Mm-hmm. Um, understanding their learning styles mm. came up again and again. So like if you if you understand that you're kinesthetic, mm. you're a writer, or you need to see things verbal, you learn things verbally, or you hear things, that's how you remember things. Like you were saying about group process around how hearing others yeah. was a huge part of like your process. Yeah. For you, it was like body, more kinesthetic. Yeah. Um, understanding your learning style can support you in expressing emotions in a way that you can do that. So um, knowing your learning style is a big, and we talked a little bit about neurodiversity. Yeah. Knowing your learning style is a huge part of that. Yeah. What is neurodiversity? I feel like that's a topic that's coming up a lot in some of the people that I follow online and some of 
uh, just the conversations I think I'm running into. I think we're in a cultural moment where people are talking more about neurodiversity. And so I'd love to dive in a little bit of, if someone's not familiar with that topic, what does it mean? There's different movements. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> different strokes for different folks. I'll put that out there. That's great. Um, <laughs> of what neurodiversity means. Yeah. The autism community, There mm-hmm. again, there's different spectrums of different people that believe um, what neurodiversity is and wh- how they present autism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people in the autism community do not like the term autism. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to use neurodiverse. Some people say, okay, I want to be known as a person with autism. Some people want to say, no, I'm autistic. So mm. just within that one community, you can see these different opinions. Yeah. Um, but for me, uh, neurodiversity means that we are a species mm-hmm. that has all right-handed scissors and we have left-handers. So it's important with neurodiversity to remember that, in my mind, to remember that just because the world doesn't have resources or fit the right hand, you know, the left-handers of the world, doesn't mean that the left-handers of the world, that's an issue or a problem. Hmm. They shouldn't have to conform to the right-handed scissor or learn how to use them. Yeah. 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 So uh, for me, I'll just share that I, like, I have looked in like in your own life. Yeah. Yeah, I have dyslexia. I didn't know that until I was in college, and uh, right-handed scissors, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like only verbal, only on the PowerPoint, only you know this is this is this is what we do um, in colleges. This is the standard. Uh, luckily, I went to Berkeley that had a robust disability services program, mm-hmm. and they they tested me, and I found that out. And just with a few tweaks, a few tweaks, a few things, not even time on my tests, but just notes in a different way mm-hmm. or um, an audio recording or things like that that I could use, skyrocketed me, thrived. And I like to think, and I believe that mm-hmm. my dyslexia has allowed my brain to see things in ways other people couldn't. When I was at the crisis house and a supervisor, they called me the third door option lady because they would be like this or this. Like this is where you could go or this is where you couldn't go. And I was like, ah, there's got to be a better choice. There needs to be a third door option Mm. or a fourth door or a fifth door. You know, like I was always that person. And I believe that Part of the reason why that's possible for me is because of my dyslexia, the way that I see the world, the brain, the way that my brain switches things or changes things, unlocks some of that creativity. Yeah. So neurodiversity is very dear to my heart. Yeah. Um, I love working with people who have learning disabilities, and I just called that you know instead of I call them differently abled mm. instead of disabled. They're differently yeah. abled. Differently abled. I think the way that you were describing that, you were just saying, like, you here's a huge contribution that I bring to the world because I see it differently. And I feel like this has come up a lot in different conversations I've had, even over the last week, of div- the additive nature of diversity. And I think so often we think, like, diversity is at best neutral. Like, okay, we'll have more voices to the table. But really, we are limiting ourselves. We're limiting our potential. We're limiting where we can take things. We're limiting 
you know, our options. And as um, I'm a seven on the Enneagram, so I love all the options. <laughs> I think getting more voices to the table has an additive nature and we find solutions that we wouldn't have. We find different ways to see the world. It also reminds me of just the work that we're doing around mm. diversity, equity, and inclusivity. Yeah. And also the work about around trauma, being trauma-informed. Yeah. And that just reminding ourselves that there's such a broad swath of people in the world and that we need their diversity and their unique way of seeing things and their unique voices in the conversation and that we shouldn't assume that the way that we see the world or our way of doing ways doing things is the right way. Yeah. Mm. And then the, with the trauma-informed, but just being aware of not othering people be, and really getting curious about why they see things the way they do mm-hmm. instead of uh, sort of always just reacting or punishing them for their behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I think that uh, we all collectively in, – need to have a posture of compassion and curiosity mm-hmm. as we see people and like we have so much to learn from each other and people's unique vantage points. Absolutely. I want to put in there a little bit that diversity is a huge word <laughs> that yeah, we use right. a lot and there's so I think there's a mm, one of the one of the barriers yeah. to inclusivity and, and diversity in my mind is the huge stigma of the things unseen. Mm. So you wouldn't have known I was dyslexic. Yes. Right? So like if I had a shame around that, which I did for a really long time, I wouldn't, you wouldn't self-disclose have, have self-disclosed that. Um, and we wouldn't understand who was in the room. Right. Mm. So I think there is, this is a little Plug for me, knowing that, and I'm going to put out right out there that I am a, um, you know, a white female of privilege um, in this room right now, in this body. And I want to say that, like, a little plug out there for if we want diversity, we we need to make it safe enough to say the unseen diversity. For sure. I totally agree with you. Yeah. And recognizing all of our, I mean, I think that that's part of what we all need to do is recognize Mm -hmm. our privilege and then harness, like for me, I'm single and I'm a mother. And Mm -hmm. so, and having that posture and position in the world, like you were saying around your dyslexia gives me the opportunity to see where people don't have a, like where other single mothers don't have a voice and Mm -hmm. like be aware of like how to, be a be of voice when I feel safe and able, you know. Yeah. For communities that might not have them, and and I feel grateful for the places that have given me more compassion. You know, like yeah. the areas of my life that have given me more of that compassion and curiosity yeah. that I think we all need because I feel like they help me be more aware in the other areas of my life where it's all privilege. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I always try to remember that. Um, and I always try to say often, courage is not without fear. You literally cannot have courage, bravery without fear. Mm. So when you're talking to me about yeah. like, you know, you we need we need the safety and, you know, like spaces like this, creating that and finding those spaces. But also what I heard was like, sometimes I needed to be brave. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I needed to be cur- courageous to say it in those communities or in those opportunities that I had. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I just feel a lot of, it's a call to all of us to have ownership, to create those safe spaces. That's what I was hearing is that you have found a lot of safe spaces, but you also have created safe spaces for people because of what you carry. Um, and it doesn't feel like it's a, it's not on one person. Like it's, it's not on just one person to create the safety. I think we all have an ownership and a responsibility to be safe within ourselves and then offer that to other people. And But it is, I feel like this is a really hard topic. And I think we've talked a lot about psychological safety and what that looks like. And, and we can't, it it can't just be on the person who we quote unquote is diverse because diversity to whom? Like diversity to the dominant privileged Mm -hmm. person. Like we all, diversity just is like, I have diversity differently than you, even within what we think is like the most homogenous group. Like you were saying, like there's the undisclosed, there is things that. So I feel like we're all, I don't know. I feel like yeah, I'm not there's so many articulating myself, it. but there's so many layers and it feels so weighted and it also feels like there's not even safety often to have these conversations because I don't want to do it wrong or I don't want to say the wrong thing or I'm just clumsy. And so I'm just saying in here, like I feel clumsy around that, but I think we need to be willing to feel clumsy and to have the conversations <laughs> to create safety, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think risk, um, taking risks when you're feeling clumsy yeah. gives permission for other people to do so. Mm. I've really had that experience a lot um, in my life. I've been really, really, truly blessed to see people of power, mm-hmm. to see people in leadership, to see people who I look up to mm-hmm. say, I have this thing. Yeah. I have this thing or I struggle with this thing or whatever. And I've just been so blessed to have that it allows me to give myself permission to say it in places like this or to, you know, to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, thanks yeah. for sharing that. Um, I know another thing you're passionate about, that you have a dog. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a lab. I do. Uh, tell me her name again. Nova. 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 And she is trained to be a... What was the word? A service dog? Facility service dog. Facility service dog. Yes. So I really like to tell her story because I think, well, there's a lot in there, but just quickly, I, she was, so I've been training service dogs for about 10 years. First guide dogs with the blind. She was my first autism service dog. So originally she was supposed to be for a child with autism, Mm -hmm. working with a child with autism. And Real quick, mobility, people who have mobility dogs, which is like guide dogs for the blind, is a lot different than some than um, comfort service mm. dog or mm. someone who's, uh, you know, again, autism, a calming support yeah. um, service dog. Those two are very different. So it's so my first um, dog with good dogs who is autism service dogs. Anyways, she... She was supposed to be a service dog for a child with autism. She made it all the way up to the point to getting tested for being out in public. Mm. And then they tested her for prey drive. Prey drive is an innate, cannot train it out, cannot do any, you know, it is it is a trait characteristic that she has. And prey drive means a real desire and instinct to chase. Mm. So she chases birds. So she became this 
she became this thing of failure. Mm -hmm. You know, she failed. (laughs) She failed service dog school Mm. by this thing she could not help. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I I had in my head, what could I have done? Did I fail her? You know, she failed. Like, what's going on? And in my head, I was making it all about me, you know, like, as if I'm, as if I'm God, as if I could take that from her or do something about that, which we do a lot. Yeah. I do a lot. But what we figured out is that they have a thing called career change. Mm. So they change from what they were going to be doing to what what they can do. And we were looking at training videos of her, and she is so empathetic. Mm-hmm. She knows when clients—so I took her to work as a therapist. I took her to work. Um, she did groups, and she worked with individuals. And what we were seeing, I couldn't obviously— <laughs> video that, mm-hmm. but I would video with w- w- what I was practicing with colleagues. And she knew when someone was about to cry. Mm. She knew because of her failure, because mm-hmm. of that trait that I called a failure, that was not a failure in her, and that they called a failure, it actually became her greatest strength. Mm. Being that hypervigilant to things, she then knew when someone was going to cry. She knew when someone was going to was was hurting, and she would automatically go over to them mm-hmm. without me even saying anything. She had that innate ability. So she uh, career changed to facilities dog uh, service dog, which means that outside she gets to be a regular old puppy dog. Mm. She gets to go on the beach. She gets to run around. Everyone asks me this: Oh, does she get to play? Yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> she loves to play. Um, and in San Diego, there are dog beaches, and she loves mm. that. She t- she talks to everyone, quote unquote, talks to everyone. <laughs> but then, as soon as she steps in, she puts her vest on and she steps into a, a therapy facility. She is then a service dog. Mm. She's considered certified service dog, and um, that's what makes her a facility specific dog. But I love telling her story because something innately inside of her could have been seen as a failure mm-hmm. and turn out to be one of her biggest strengths. This sound, it dovetails so nicely to this conversation that we've been having. Like she was in a right-handed world, but was a lefty, like, or whatever, yeah. you yeah, know, it's yeah. just something she couldn't change about herself, but it gives her an expansive view and an expansive gifting to, to meet people where they're at. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Well, as we're kind of landing, I love getting to know you a little bit more in this, and I'm so excited that you will get to meet all of uh, our guests at the Oaks. What We often ask, what is one practice that keeps you grounded? Mm. Would you share that with our listeners today? Mm-hmm. <laughs> My grandmother was from England, and <laughs> she loved her tea. Mm. And so... My practice is that I drink a cup of tea and I, a good cup of tea, like a good, some honey, some cream, really loose leaf, like Mm. really good tea. And every time I drink a cup of tea, I make it a point to breathe, Mm. to smell the tea, to feel the warmth of the tea, even if it's summer outside, (laughs) like... (laughs) I make it a point every time I drink a cup of tea to have a moment to myself to reflect and to to smell the roses, smell the tea. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's such a small thing that to do, but I can do it anywhere and everywhere, and um, it brings me back home. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yes. Smell the tea leaves. Smell the tea. Mm-hmm. 
Well, thank you so much. Thank you for showing up today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.